So in Boy Scouts, the scout motto is be prepared. Caleb could have told me that. So, And I remember uh, our scoutmaster was not uh, kind of old school, okay? He, he liked to teach us what it meant to be prepared in a very different way. Uh, we went, I joined Boy Scouts in about sixth grade, so I was probably 11 or 12 years old. And after going on a couple of camping trips with the group, our scoutmaster decided that it was now our turn to cook. And so as part of that job, we had to decide what meals we were going to make, what supplies we needed for those meals, and what utensils we needed to use to cook those meals. Can you imagine an 11-year-old boy knowing all of that? Luckily, I did not have to go first. My friend Levi was the first one to go, and he uh, got everything. He gave the scoutmaster his list, and my scoutmaster, being the way he was, brought only what was on the list. So we got there, set up camp, cooked our dinner, got ready, went to bed, woke up the next morning, and we didn't have everything we needed to cook breakfasts. And we were some very hungry boys by the end of that trip. But we learned to be prepared, to be ready, to sit down and think about everything that we might possibly need to do the task we have. Jesus, in Mark chapter 13, will discuss what it takes to be ready for Him. There is an expectation that we know that Jesus will return someday. It may be by the end of this sermon. It may not be by the end of this sermon. It may be 20 years from now, but he will come, and when he comes, we need to be ready. And so he discusses what it takes to be ready. If you have your Bibles, we're going to start in verses 1 through 4 of Mark 13 today. And this is going to set the scene for what takes place in the rest of the chapter. This is what... It says, As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite of the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, what, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? This is the final week of Jesus' ministry. This particular day, Tuesday, is the day that we know the most about Jesus' life except for uh, when he's crucified. And, and this whole week has just kind of gone crazy break speed. And so I kind of want to catch us up to where we're at in this. All right. On that Sunday, just a couple of days before, Jesus came into Jerusalem in triumph. All right. He rode on a donkey. The crowds were yelling, Hosanna in the highest. Everyone was excited except for the religious leaders. You know, they weren't too excited about how the people were treating Jesus or about Jesus himself. But Jesus comes in. He comes to the Temple Mount. He looks around and he leaves. There's probably some disappointment because they just laid all these palm trees and their, and their coats down and they are excited. They're wanting Jesus to come and be the king and he just, he just goes away. 
The next day, Monday, here comes Jesus again, and he comes to the Temple Mount, and having surveyed the land, he decides that the money collectors are not to be there, and he begins to overturn and to kick them out, those who are selling and buying and changing coins. And we're told in the Gospel story that Jesus, by the power that he had, controlled who came into the temple and who left. And again, the crowds stand in amazement. And again, the religious leaders, they're none too happy about the crowd's reaction to Jesus or to Jesus. So when Tuesday comes and Jesus comes back to the Temple Mount, they are ready for him and they begin to ask him a series of questions. It is often called the Great Day of Questioning. And the religious leaders, they're trying to get Jesus to do one of two things. They want him to say something that will cause the crowds to turn on him and no longer follow him. Or they want him to say something that they can go to Rome and get him arrested and killed. But Jesus, in his wisdom, provides none of these excuses to the religious leaders. And he dumbfounds them with every word that he says, and we get to the end of the day, and here we have the disciples looking at the temple complex and saying to Jesus, Jesus, do you see all of this? How amazing is this place? To be fair, the temple was pretty amazing. Herod the Great uh, is given the name Great, not because he was a good guy. In fact, he was very terrible, but he was given the name Great because of the building projects he did. One of them was the temple. And the Jews did not really trust Herod for a number of good reasons. And so when he said, I want to restore this temple, the Jews said, well, okay, but you have to do it very slowly. And so for a period of 40 years, Herod builds this temple. It goes 20 years after Herod's death before it's finally completed. And Herod had secured these large white pieces of rocks that, that were fantastic. No one had seen their sizes before. And he used these rocks to build and restore this temple. And on top of these white rocks, he, put, he adorned it with gold. And it was a magnificent building. It, was, it dominated the landscape. The, t- building, the temple complex covered most of the city of Jerusalem. And so from miles away, on top of this hill, you saw this beautiful temple. And so it's no surprise that the disciples would turn to Jesus and say to him, look at these amazing buildings, Jesus. What is surprising is Jesus' response. Not one stone will remain. After saying this, Jesus punctuates his remarks by walking up the Mount of Olives. Uh, The Mount of Olives is outside of Jerusalem on the side of the temple. And so as you're walking up it, prominent in your vision is the temple. And so Jesus has just gotten done saying to his disciples, not one stone will remain. And then he shows them the temple from the outside. And he gets the disciples wondering. And we have the four original disciples who Jesus called a long time ago to come and be fishers of men. And they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, when will this happen? And what are the signs? And what we have in the rest 
of Mark chapter 13 is Jesus answering that question, when will Jerusalem and in particular the temple be destroyed? And what are the signs? He will sprinkle in a little bit and we'll see about the coming of the Son of Man. But for the majority of this chapter, it's dealing with that destruction. And that destruction took place about 40 years after Jesus says these words. In AD 66, the Israelites will re- rebel against Rome. They will kill the legion that is guarding the temple or the uh, city of Jerusalem. They will kick out the Roman officials, and they will be in charge of their land for a period of about four years. And at the end of the four years, a Roman general by the name of Titus will come in, and he will lay siege to the city. And when he enters into the walls, the Roman armies will burn the city, and in particular, the the temple complex. And the fire burns so hot that the gold on the temple melts, and it seeps down into the cracks of the stones. And when the fire is done, the Roman soldiers will tear down the temple brick by brick to get to the gold that has seeped in between them. In the words of Jesus, not one of these stones will remain, comes true. So that destruction is what Jesus is going to talk about. But within this passage, I think there are five areas of our lives that we need to be prepared for. We need to be ready for. The first is this, we need to be prepared for deception. And we read about it in Jesus' words in verses 5 through 8. Jesus says, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nations will rise against nations, kingdoms against kingdoms. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. And these are the beginning of birth birth pains. Jesus says in this passage a number of times, watch out, be on guard, be alert, be ready. And it kind of shows us what we need to be ready for. The first one is deception. And there will be people who rise up and try to deceive the people of God. One way they'll try to do this is by claiming to be the Messiah or claiming to speak for the Messiah. Jesus talks about men who will rise up and say, I am he. It's a designation that Jesus uses of himself throughout his ministry. I am he. But it finds its significance in God's own self-designation. In the Old Testament, we come across a story about a guy by the name of Moses and Moses was raised in the Egyptian uh, princehood, but he eventually kills a man and flees to the Midian desert. And while he's in the desert, watching over some sheep, there is a burning bush, and God speaks out of that bush. And he tells Moses, go back and set my people free. And Moses asks, who do I say is sending me? And God says, I am that I am. You go and tell them that I am is sending you. We sing that today. Good job. In the Greek, there are two words that we translate to three in English. And they're the simple two words, I am. 
These messiahs are claiming to be from God. I am. And they will try to deceive people. And when we look at the history of our religion, if we look at the history of the world, we see people do this over and over again. And there comes a time in our lives where we must be prepared to fight against that. People like Joseph Smith, Jim Jones, David Koresh, Charles Manson, Marshall Applewhite, and Bonnie Lou Nettles have all at some point in time stood up and said, I am speaking for God or I am God. And they have led many astray and many to their deaths. And so we as Christians must be ready for when people try to deceive us by saying they speak for God. We also must be ready for two very scary things. The first is wars. And in our world, we kind of know when wars take place, right? We, we almost know instantly. Um, Hawaii, a couple of weeks ago, woke up. Everyone has a cell phone. Woke up with a very scary message on their phone that North Korea shot off a nuclear weapon and it was heading straight for them. And so for the next 38 minutes, they all were afraid for their lives for very good reasons until somebody realized, oh, wait, we made a mistake. But how do we know that they are shooting off a missile half a world away? It's amazing how quickly we get information. But in the first century, they relied upon news traveling through the various peoples and the various towns as they traded. And so the ideas of wars and rumors of wars, it would have played heavily on them. Are they really fighting? Is that really happening? And they would have no idea for sure. And here's the problem is sometimes as Christians, we like to look at wars and wars happening as signs that Jesus is coming back. But notice what Jesus says here. He says, they have to happen. Don't worry about them. And wars are scary, and I don't think we need to downplay it at all. But as Christians, it should not distract us. It should not deceive us into thinking that Jesus is almost here. In the same ways that war should not deceive us, we, natural disaster should also not deceive us. He says earthquakes and famines and these terrible things that in the first century world devastated towns. They can be scary to live through. And when we look at this last year, just for the United States, we saw all kinds of natural disasters, right? We, the entire West Coast seemed to be burning for most of the year. We had hurricanes that led to floods, that led to people losing homes and, and possessions. And it happened. And we need to have compassion for those people that went through it, but at the same time, we cannot look at that and say, Jesus is almost here. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says they are the beginnings of birth. They must happen. And here's what I think we're going to see throughout this entire chapter is Jesus wants us to be on mission with him. Jesus wants us to be seeking and to saving the lost. And there are some things in life that kind of distract us from that. One of them are deceptions. And there's a lot of people in history that have said Jesus is almost here, and so they go out and they look to the heavens and they sit there and they wait. And while they're looking to the heavens for Jesus to come, they've forgotten about all their neighbors who don't know Jesus, 
who, if Jesus did come back, would not be going with him to heaven. And as we look to the sky waiting for Jesus, we cannot forget about these people over here. And so we must be prepared for deception, because if deceptions come and we get distracted looking up there, we're going to miss on the job that we have here. So be ready. Be ready for persecutions. Jesus talks about in verses 9 through 13 when he says this, You must be on your guard. Watch out. Be alert. You will be handed over to your local councils and flogged in the synagogues on account of me. You will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must be preached to all nations. And whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, a father, his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end, he will be saved. As Christians, we must be aware that there will arise persecutions. And these persecutions come from various areas. One is from religious people. I mean, the synagogues, this was the Jewish religion, those who denied Jesus as the Messiah and still felt an obligation to preserve their religion. And so they went out and they captured the Christians and they dragged them to courts and they flogged them as was their right and they sentenced them to death. In our world, there's a battle being raged against Christians, maybe not here in the U.S., but most of the world deals with it from religious extremists, from ISIS and Al-Qaeda and Hindus in India. And Christians are being exterminated one by one because of religion. And so this religious persecution, we must be aware of it. And we must be prepared when those persecutions come. The second form of persecution comes from the governments. And for the those living in Rome, it wasn't necessarily very pretty for them. Nero was the first emperor who institutionalized persecutions against Christians. And Nero is not a good guy at all, okay? Nero took Christians and he would have these garden parties, but they didn't have lights and he would do these at night. And so as he's having these garden parties, he would take Christians, tie them up to a pole, stick them up, soak them with oil, and then light them on fire so that he could have these parties at night. Persecution from the governments. And even in our world today, there are governments that are opposed to Christianity, places like China, North Korea, and pretty much any communist regime. And we have been very blessed here in America for the last however many years, 200 plus, to be able to worship how we want to worship. But there may come a time where the government is against those who believe what the Bible says to be true. And if that happens, We must not be surprised. We must not be shocked. We need to be prepared because Jesus said it would happen. And probably the worst form of persecution comes from family. In the first century, there were the Christians that were Jewish who claimed to be Jesus to be the Messiah, and it was their family that was the ones that were turning them over to the synagogues and to the governments to have them killed. Brothers, against brothers, fathers 
against his children, children against their parents. And can you imagine the betrayal that you would feel as your brother drags you to the courts? Or as your dad takes you in the hand and leads you to the religious leaders? Or as your own children drop you off at the courts? This is probably the worst form of persecution. And it's sometimes the harshest and the hardest one to get through, but we must be ready. Are we ready? Well, in this passage, there is hope because Jesus says it's not really you that they're after because when they do it, they do it because of me. It's not that they hate you, it's they hate me and they want to get rid of me and what I stand for. So be ready for those persecutions. Be ready mentally. Don't falter when they come. Stay faithful because he who is faithful to the end, he will be saved. Be ready for devastations. Jesus talks about in verses 14 through 23 when he says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or into the house to take anything out. Let no one get into the field to go back to their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never be equaled again. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would have survived. But for the sake of the elect, whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. And at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard, watch out, pay attention. I've told you everything ahead of time. Jesus here is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And it's filled with Old Testament allusions that we have to understand what they meant in the Old Testament. The most key one is this abomination that causes desolation. That word appears in Daniel, and when Daniel uses it, he's talking about a particular incident. Alexander the Great was a uh, Macedonian Greek who came in and conquered the Persian Empire and the Egyptian pharaohs. And as he does this, he does this in probably a matter of 10 years, okay? He owns the largest piece of property uh, that the Europe and Western Asia had seen at the time. But he died relatively shortly before he can consolidate all of his power. And as he dies, the generals that are under him, they decide to split up the land, and two people in particular affect Israel. One is the Ptolemies in Egypt, and the other is the Seleucids in Babylonia. And these two empires, these two kings, they fought over Israel back and forth, and they changed hands a couple of times. But one time when the Ptolemies were very weak, where their kings were very young, and, and it, would, it was a time when you could take them out, Antiochus IV, a Seleucid, brought his armies to Egypt. And he besieged the capital city. And as he's ready to give the death blow, in comes a Roman general who basically says, you need to leave. And Antiochus, scared of Rome, 
leaves. And in his anger and his need to pay back some debts he had for the war that he's just waged, he raids the temple of, of Israel. And he steals all of their money. And it doesn't sit well with the Jews. They're not very happy about it. But Antiochus still needed more money, and there's a man there, a Jewish man, who said, hey, if you name me high priest, I will give you all kinds of money. So Antiochus said, sure, I don't care. And so he took the money, named him high priest, even though he wasn't a Levite, even though he wasn't allowed to have that title. And when that happened, the Jews rebelled. And Antiochus, to kind of say, stop rebelling, he declared the worship of Yahweh to be void, to not do it, to be illegal. And he goes into the temple at Israel, and he declares it now a temple for Zeus, and he takes a pig, and he sacrifices it upon the altar burnt offering. And if you know anything about Jews, this was not okay. And they called that incident the abomination that causes desolation. In the year A.D. 66, the Zealots, a group of Jews, will take over Jerusalem, kicking out the Roman legions, actually killing them. And they control Jerusalem, and that means they control the temple worship. And while they're there, the Zealots do two things. They allow murderers and criminals to walk the temple courts, which was illegal in the Old Testament. They even allowed these men to kill known supporters of Rome on the temple grounds. And then they take a guy by the name of Fanny. And they name him high priest, even though he wasn't allowed to have that title. Does that sound familiar? The abomination that causes desolation. And Jesus says, the moment you see that, run away, flee, get out, don't go back for any of your stuff, just go. Because if you're caught... It will be devastating. Jesus says you need to be ready for this devastation because if you're not, there are going to be people who rise up and will claim to be the Messiah and they will keep you there when you need to just be running for your lives. When Titus comes to Jerusalem and besieges it, one thing we do know is that inside the city, there were a number of people claiming to be the Messiah, this guy that would lead them to victory and establish the new kingdom. But all they did is they dragged support to themselves and away from other people. And they were a city divided, and Titus easily took over the city. And we're told that as he walks into that city and kills everyone that's there, that the blood runs in the street up to the necks of the horses. Which is probably hyperbolic language. Showing the devastation that happened. But in the midst of this, we see that God is still with his people. He says that he for the sake of the elect, for the sake of those who are called by God's name, this judgment will be cut short. God still loves his people, even when the things that we hold dear crumble around us. And there may become times in our lives where we must flee or be caught up in the destruction. We must be ready for when those devastations come. 
we also need to be ready for triumph. Jesus kind of shifts topic at this point in verse 24. And he goes not from the destruction of Jerusalem and goes to the second coming of Jesus. And he says this, starting in verse 24, In those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the skies, the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at this time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power, and He will send His angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Jesus comes in triumph. And when Jesus comes, the cosmos will be changed. It will not be how it is. The sun will darken, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall, the planets themselves will be shaken up. And things will be changed. And it won't be a surprise when Jesus comes because everything that we know will be different. And when Jesus comes, He comes in a cloud. He comes in triumph. Here in about a week, whoever wins the Super Bowl, hopefully the Eagles, when they come back to Philadelphia, one of the things that Philadelphia will do in that moment is they will hold a celebration. A parade where all the players come in and they have the spoils of their victory, which is the Lombardi Trophy. In Roman time, the generals would leave being sent out by the Senate and they would go and they would go win battles. And when they came back to Rome, they would have a triumph entry with the general standing in his chariot, marching into the Senate, and with behind him would be his armies, and behind them would be the spoils of their wars. And when Jesus comes back, he comes back not in a chariot, but in a cloud. And in the Old Testament, the only person that rode on a cloud was God himself. Jesus is God, coming back with all power and might and glory. And behind him is his angel army marching behind him. And behind them is the spoils of his victory, the elects, those who have escaped death and enter into life. Where previously Jesus tells the Christians to flee, to run away when the destruction of Jerusalem is at hand, it doesn't matter how far we run now because the end is at hand. And though we've been scattered across the world, God will collect us again and we will march with Jesus in triumph. So be ready for triumph, for victory. Lastly, we need to be ready for God's timing. And we see that here starting in verse 28 when Jesus focuses back upon the destruction of Jerusalem by saying, Now learn the lesson of the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. And truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass, but my words will never pass. Jesus says, I have given you what you need to know about the destruction of Jerusalem. You know the signs, and it's about 40 years, which is in the Old Testament, a generation when these things happen. 
And it happens when God decides. And they are to be aware of it. And for what we read in the early church fathers is that Christians were aware of it and that they fled before the destruction of Jerusalem. And as far as we know, according to tradition, not a single Christian was caught up in the destruction of Jerusalem. And then Jesus says this. He says, about that day, an hour, the time when the Son of Man comes in triumph, of that day and hour, no one knows. Not the angels, not the Son, only the Father. So be on guard, be alert, be ready, be prepared, because you do not know when that day will come. Over the last 2,000 years, there have been people who have tried to decipher Jesus' words and the book of Revelation to determine when Jesus will come. You know what? 100% of those guesses have been 100% wrong. And I think what Jesus wants us to understand here is that we need to be ready for God's timing. We will not know when it will take place. We should not stand on our rooftops looking to the heavens, waiting for Jesus to come. We have more important things to do. We have to be ready for when Jesus comes back. And in the meantime, before Jesus comes, we have a task to do. We have been given a call to be on mission with Jesus, to seek and to save the lost, to make disciples who make disciples, to pass on this revelation that we have to the next generation, to let our friends and our family know so we have to be prepared not to be deceived to get off that subject, to get off that task. We have to be prepared for the persecutions that sometimes can cause us to pull away and not want to be on mission. We have to be ready for the devastations that cause the institutions of our lifetimes to crumble around us. And we cannot allow those devastations to make us lose track of what we need to do. And we have to be ready for that triumph. For when Jesus comes, because when Jesus comes, it's over. It's done. And until Jesus comes, we need to be spreading the message of salvation toward the world. The gospel message that brings life and victory. So we cry out, come Lord Jesus, come. And we work until he comes. Will you pray with me? Father God, we, we do make this our cry. Come. We are ready. But even though we are ready, Lord, we know that there is a task before us. Help us to remain focused on this task. Help us not to be distracted by anything that might come this way. Help us to be prepared to do that mission that you have for us. Lord, help us to be ready for you. Help us to be warriors for you. To be ambassadors. To be a part of that triumphal entry into the world. In your name we pray. Amen.